lads, welcome back. Another episode of The Backdoor Cut. And I'm kind of leaving you in the dark a little bit as to what we're going to talk about, but you have an idea for today's episode. I want to talk about beginnings in the GAA and how you got involved in the GAA and what the GAA means to you. So that all starts at club level, I guess. So first question I will ask is, can you remember the first day that you were brought down to the club for a game of football or a game of hurling? Go ahead. I'd be lying if I said I could. I've I've a vague rem- like memory of of playing at under probably eight level. Um, yeah, running about Bannerlack Field to say like definitely like my, my memory's not brilliant when it comes to these things. But I think you remember key moments at that age and things you hold on to. Um, a small memory would be just like mini tournaments playing with your club and I'll always remember just at a wee blitz winning like a a player of the tournament at about seven or eight and holding on to that and that kind of like was something that I kind of always remembered at that age and kind of pushed me on for later years but I don't know what, what you can say I can I can remember pretty vividly actually the first day and a couple of days in between uh but there's a big blur there but mine was sort of before cl- even club um just with my, my dad in the house like he basically he was still playing football so it would have been going to watch his games um watching games with him and then tyrone like he's obviously from tyrone so a big influence there and then growing up through the knowledge, Tyrone winning the All Ireland, and literally 2000 was born in '99, Tyrone in 2003, so it was kind of new, sort of what the crack was there. And then I remember just always out with him kicking about. And then uh, whenever I started playing, St Gauls were one of the only teams that had a team for fundamentals or under sixes or eights or something, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And I went down, and Kevin Bradley, one of my best mates, like he, uh, this is this is where I remember it. I was like, well, what's your name? He goes Toyota. I was going, right, so I was running out the house, yes, Toyota, Toyota, pass, pass, oh, and then, uh, so that stuck with me, so that's why I remember that one, and then I remember just going training in different schools and that, like indoors over the winter and that, but a bit of a blur up until maybe a few tournaments, on the race mm-hmm. tournaments and that, die. so um remember it for strange reasons, like, but I can remember it all right, I? Did you play much at primary school level? I would have. I would have played, like I was a very small school, there was only 50, between 50 and 60 in my whole primary school, P1 to P7, there was five or six in my class, um, my memories of school football would have been like pretty good, um, I remember there's always a P4 competition, um, that would have been my first like, you know, where I realised I actually love this, like, I remember playing with the older lads, like playing with the P7 team when I was P5, and that was massive for me um, and I always would have had a like I always had a serious just want to play Gaelic at that age um, and that was probably a, a good thing being involved with a school who had really small numbers because I got to play with older lads and, and got to be thrown into that environment and I had to learn quickly and yeah that's that's it's it's, it's good memories I suppose at, at that age which probably it's surprising enough that I can remember so much from from my school days when I was only seven or eight. I was similar to that. I don't think we had a... There would have been people come in coaching when we were in primary school, but I don't think there was an actual team until you were P6, P7. But same as that, could pull into the team when I was P5. And I remember the big thing was there was a tournament and uh, over the weekend or whatever, and 
you got your jersey and you got to bring a jersey home. It's the first time you had a jersey with a number on it, and it was swinging on me. But going yeah. home with his jersey, um, started as a corner forward, lads. How, how times have changed. <laughs> but um, I remember going home with that, going, Fuck, this is unreal. Yeah. And then I played through school, P5, P6, P7. Um, I was the first England of getting out of, getting out of class to go and play matches, yeah. which was great. Um, I suppose we bit we bit during school uh, and primary school only the last couple of years like but same as yourself just you know even when there was coaches coming in you just wanted to play and wanted to play and you were wondering why PE you weren't playing playing Gaelic or whatever like you were even I just remember having such a keen interest in it from from no age I don't know why that was or what was kind of driving it at that age but like out of everyone in, at my own age group at that I would have been probably the one who was probably most keen into it for for whatever reason maybe probably because I suppose it comes back to family as well and what like my grandfather would have played for Fermanagh won a junior All-Ireland that, that was always something I would have you know this is so important like this is this is the best thing ever like all I want to do is go and play that and I, I would have been like thinking about those things from a very young young age Um, but yeah it's interesting oh it's football Never hurling. I played. I played hurling as well. I played hurling as well. Um, only st- actually, it was always football first, and I only started playing hurling from game. Played a wee bit in primary school. Um, I think I only started playing for the club then. Maybe when I was P six or P seven, maybe under twelve, I started playing for the club. And last year under twelve, and uh, only okay, I went through phases of loving it and hating it, and then just I uh, it got this stage. The last the last year of me playing it, I just hated it and didn't want to be there at all. Like. Funny, my my primary school was actually a hurling school, the only hurling school in the whole of whole of Fermanagh. Like I was, as a child, I lived in the town, but this school was like ten minutes outside of of Enniskillen. And the only reason I went to that school was because my, our neighbours, which was opposite me, was the principal. So we were travelling fifteen minutes outside the town to go to primary school. No one could ever get their head around it. This is the only school in the whole of Fermanagh that did hurling. So suddenly we were big into hurling, big into football. Um, so I would have played hurling right up till I was eight, seventeen, probably sixteen, seventeen. Went to four failures because like we were the only hurling team, you know, really in the thing. So a lot of my good memories underage were hurling, going to them failures. They were, geez, they were the best memories I probably have at that at that age. Like going and staying down in Clare and Limerick and Galway and Dublin. We actually reached our first the club's first ever failure final as well at at my last year at fourteen which was a massive thing for me. It was meant to be going on a family holiday on the Monday. I had to cancel the flights to there and play, stay on for the final and ended up getting beat. But yeah. my, um, Most of my success in school, secondary school, would have been uh, hurling as well. Like our our year group won, uh, I think it was our first or third year I was playing, won Ulster Colleges the whole way through. Like I think our, my year done a full sweep of like first to seventh year, like won everything. Um, although maybe when they were sixth year, I think they made even one sixth year as well. I think they done a full sweep the whole way through every year, like which is mental. But I was there for three of them. <laughs> <laughs> You're a football head. A football head got one B football medal, but uh, Aye. three three A hurling medals. Like so, I was happy enough for that. Okay, I was always told I was a football head, even when I used to always have to do a lot of convincing. No, I'm I'll I'll be staying with the hurling and the football. But it, it's, it depends on what mood whatever uh, manager was in if it's uh, your footballer yeah. or whenever they're stuck for, for a player hero and you're definitely a hurler here <laughs> <laughs> I was never I don't think I was ever class myself as a hurler like. it's mad how different parts of the country have completely different experiences because I'm probably more similar 
to Owen's experience, but in the opposite way in that I didn't touch a Gaelic football till I was 10 years old, but every lunchtime in primary school from the age of five, six, it was hurling. Like, because I'm from Tipperary. I remember being dropped down to the club age six, I'd say maybe five or six, tiny little pair of red white shorts on me and a hurl with no grip on it and baiting tires to yeah, learn how to classic. pull on the ball. And then I went to primary school in Offaly where like uh, like a very small primary school similar to yours, but hurling, it was hurling, that was it. Mm. And it's just interesting how like, not that far away, but up the country, there can be an experience so different but so similar in a way as well in that mm. like both of you have experience with hurling you in particular but you were more football when you're younger so it just sounds so foreign to me to see until I've moved to Dublin and seen it at other clubs to see six, seven, eight, nine year olds playing football because I just never just saw some, it for yeah I, there was to be fair even in even in Belfast there would have been some clubs would have been mainly hurling clubs like even even now in Belfast, a lot of clubs are dual clubs, but they'll lean more towards one or the other. Um, like St. John's probably stands out for me. They, growing up, they would have had very, very strong hurling teams. They mm. would have been down the fields and a lot as well because yeah. I remember going to the Gale talk and that, there was boys wouldn't, they would show up a couple of days late because they were down at the field or whatever. Yeah. Um, but all their hurlers, Camogues, they were always, they were always the strong ones. Like, um, But I think most other clubs probably would have leaned more towards the football side of things. The Fela is something magnificent as well, isn't oh. it? I was lucky to play in two Felas and it's just mad that you're playing against all these players from all over the country and from elsewhere as well, like from mm. other countries. But in your mind, when you're playing in the Fela as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, you are playing in the All-Ireland Final, the All-Ireland oh. Senior Series. Like. This was... We were in, for context, like... It's from Anna Hurland, so we were in like division maybe six, seven, uh, maybe one up from the bottom. And in my head, like this was an all like I I was about to get an all Ireland medal, like <laughs> that was my goal. I was about to achieve it. Thought it was the most important thing in the world, like um, which I suppose as a young lad you you don't know any different. Um, it's probably the best way to, to be, but um, I suppose like for me it was the most important thing, and I I always thought in my own head that. Everyone else thought that too, outside of the group, which they 100% wouldn't have. But um, it's the fail is an unbelievable competition. I think they've done away with actually the staying over in people's houses, going down. And I guess just it just changed now to like a two or three day thing where you just go for the weekend. But that was probably the best memories I have as a, as a young lad. Like, Was, was yeah. it always GAA for Bodhi? I uh, played a wee bit of soccer, but always, always GA, GA mad in our house. Like, um, played, I remember wanting to play a bit of soccer, played for maybe, played a wee bit when I was in primary school for the youth club, like, and then played for a club, Rosario, for two and a half, three years, like, and just enjoyed it while it was there, but I just knew, it was like, nah, this isn't for me. Like, I knew it was, uh, knew it was always GA, like. It's very, very similar now, played from... Probably played from about 14 to 16, probably three or four years I did it. Um, but like, like I always knew this isn't what I'm going to be. I was just for a bit of crack. Everyone else was doing it. Uh, I actually played in nets for one of the age groups. Same. Ended up as a goalkeeper because I was tall and I could fetch a ball. So didn't really enjoy that either. That kind of put me off even further. But nah, I was never, never going to go down that route. I don't think I, don't think I had the talent either, to be honest. 
I was I was okay at it. Like I suppose the standard maybe you're playing that like again in your head you're going fuck this is you know you're going to nine o'clock kick off on a Saturday morning you're going this is the Champions, this is the, this is Champions League stuff yeah. like and then you just hoof the ball and run after it, like and you were running about midfield you're thinking you're a Chevy Alonso spraying passes and they're going keep it on the grass and going nah I'm hitting pingers here like but uh, no I think you thought you were handy enough but then you see other boys playing and you're just going right down miles away from that like yeah early specialisation is a hot topic in youth SNC, UGAA. Are like are there many of your teammates that you look at and you reckon could have made it big at other sports or even played a high level of other sports or maybe are still playing at to a high level in other sports? Like Walter Walsh stands out as someone who was playing underage with Leinster and then obviously playing Kilkenny Hurling. I've seen multiple uh, soccer players go through like Shane Logwin's on the Tipperary minor panel uh, one in All-Ireland like Alan Tynan who's playing with Tipperary Hurlers now he was with Munster there to sub-academy and academy level is that something that crossed your mind ever whether you were making the right decision going down the GAA route or is there a benefit to playing more than one sport as a young lad? I think 100% benefit of it like I think you should be playing as, as much as you can um, but I had pretty I had it in my head that just everything I wanted to do was just going to be football. Like, um, I suppose being around our club senior team would have been going very well, and you were always looking at our club senior team going. Just I remember from from P seven, I just wanted to be a club senior. Like, and probably wished away a lot of my younger career just because I wanted to. I want to play senior. I want to play senior. And um, for me, it was like couldn't come quick enough. So I wanted to get out of. I wanted to stop playing soccer. I wanted to stop playing hurling. Just go all in the football pretty soon, but parents were saying the same sort of thing you know you're going to play these for as long as you can but then got the point too where you were you were out of the house six seven days a week at something you were going from school training to club training three four times a week and you were just you're that was before you knew what you were at and i suppose at that age you're just running about fully energy anyway but um yeah i had it in my head that i just wanted to play football like yeah like i i was the same i was always gaelic football oriented like but i'm also kind of disappointed that I didn't mm. try my hand at like never had the opportunity to try like with throughout St Michael's which was my college um, like we never would have really went and delved into athletics or anything so I never actually got the opportunity to know whether that was a strong point or not and then to touch on whether you know you think other lads in county setups and stuff there's 100% there's athletic freaks involved in our county setup and every other county setup that I think anyway would have probably would have did well at maybe sprinting or long jump or that side of things but then again would that have given them the same fulfilment as playing Gaelic football at the highest level probably not and would they have pushed on and become Olympians <laughs> probably not so yeah it's one thing I would have loved to love to got exposure to other sports like um, rugby like love the idea of rugby like I can remember watching Six Nations and whenever it was all on I would love to play it but I think in Belfast, like if you're from the West in Belfast, you're not going to play rugby anywhere. Like yeah. I actually played um, rugby for like two years, but I was stone useless for that. Like I uh, wasn't in good shape at that age. It was a wrong time. Right sport, wrong time. <laughs> um like a lot of people would say to me now, you should go into rugby or you should have did rugby. It's, um yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that would have That is a common thing though. Well, especially where I'm from, on the border of Tipperary, Lee Shoffley. A lot of the lads that play with leash, and if you might tell them, I don't know, maybe I should be saying this, but they'll play rugby then in their off season when they're yeah. finished playing um, 
hurling or football with their club. And I think it complements, the two sports complement each other pretty well in terms of the skills are transferable. And as well as that, it offers a totally different perspective from a totally different group of lads as well, which is probably what you're touching on there as well. Like it's a totally different group. Do you think that will change in Belfast anytime soon? Do you think more youngsters will get exposure to rugby in the same way that now there are more youngsters getting exposure to GAA? Yeah, uh, I would love to say yes, but from my perspective, I don't, I don't see that happening as much. Um, I think from maybe my area anyway where I'm from I think it's very much soccer GA hurling um, I, I haven't a clue what's going on in schools these days if rugby is coming into schools or what but I know there's definitely a lot more coming into GA but um, for me it was always like if you were South side of Belfast that's you'd play your rugby over there like um, but I don't know I would love to see it like I would love to you know try your hand at everything whether it's soccer boxing like you know sort of like everyone's done a boxing session or a karate session or something like I would have loved to have got something yeah. into that or even athletics too like just I'd have loved to try everything but uh, I would, so yeah I suppose for even younger people or even myself if I was being a youngster again I would love to have the opportunity to try as much as possible like yeah 100% Living in Dublin now and being involved with Dublin GA clubs I often hear the argument that well, young lads or young girls, they shouldn't be playing rugby or they shouldn't be playing soccer because we want them playing GAA. But it kind of doesn't sit well with me in a way because the problem isn't that young people are playing two sports. The problem is that young people are playing no sports. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so realistically, it's kind of what we talk about ourselves in regards to market and scarcity and abundance. People are afraid that, well, if they play rugby or they play soccer, that means they'll pick that over football or hurling and we can't allow that to happen whereas they should be thinking well let's facilitate them playing other sports because then they'll be more likely to continue playing GAA if a coach at the other sport says well you're not playing both anymore the, yeah. t the side that's pressurising them to pick one is probably the side that's going to get left behind yeah definitely there's that I think there's that element of you can't really I think I think recently the last couple of years things are going a lot more professional and it's kind of scary too because yes when, if that was happening when I was there I'd have been going class this is unreal because I just wanted to play senior football as soon as possible but when you do see the perspective you get a bit of perspective and you look back on it like it's not I don't think it's what you should be doing like I know especially with the soccer side of things going in the academies and that at a real young age like uh, they meant the players that I know personally who have gone through or had trials across the water and then they come back and just completely fall out of love of it um, so I think that that early push in the one direction, that early specialization, and it can be, it can be damaging more so than 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 encouraging them. Like for maybe the unless you're in the sort of top couple of percent, like yeah, that's been a trend as well. I think probably in most counties around Ireland, um, lads who specialize early and they're away over the water really early, they end up just blowing up and like like that level across the water at the higher at like obviously championship level Premier League it's so high like you need to be so invested and driven and um, and if you're not then you're more than likely not going to make it and you're going to end up back chasing your tail in Ireland and then where do you go from there really like because you've already lost four or five years where you could have probably stayed and pushed on and then went over I think they have they changed the the rules now yeah. about going over over well, the water 
Brexit now, a lot of the younger players are going to have to apply for visas. So a lot of the younger players in football now are heading to academies that aren't in Britain. They're heading yeah. to the continent. Um, but I think, like you've just touched on there, once they've fallen out of love with it and they come back, where do they go? And I think where they should be going and where they should be welcomed is likely to the GAA. You would yeah. think, just the community aspect of it. and But for them, they probably come back in the GAA going, that's a breath of fresh air. Um, just without maybe the pressure. But even though, you know, we hype it up to be the biggest thing in the world, they've probably got that experience of, you know, professional soccer is you're either making the cut or you're not, like you're gone. This is this is make or break sort of stuff mm-hmm. where they come to GAA, we're all hyping it up to be the biggest thing in the world. It's only three o'clock is do or yeah. die like and they're going, happy days, I play a game here, get a couple of pints after, it's gonna yeah. be great. But I think by wishing them well and saying like, look, best of luck with that, head over to England and uh, player soccer and player GA when they're younger then they'll be more likely to come back and then participate in GA when they come back and I see the same thing having worked in schools rugby like there are some phenomenal athletes phenomenal rugby players that they finish senior cup which is the feckin world cup as far as they're concerned and then after that they're like nah because they've lived like a professional for the last two years or whatever yeah. so they just they just burn out. They're like, I'm not really arsed doing that again. They don't understand the value in playing team sports when you're older and the community aspect to it and the working together towards something like you touched on, you don't get as much from individual sports. So like when you're in that dressing room, a GA dressing room and a club dressing room, what does that offer to your life that makes you want to keep coming back for more as aside from the medals and everything? I think it comes back to community, the community aspect of being involved with the team that you don't get when you go across the water to maybe a higher level. Like that, being around friends, you know, going for coffees, food, the banter in the changing room, all of those things add up and just make it a much more enjoyable experience. And I suppose, again, club level, football is probably gone close to what county was, probably seven, eight years ago now. So you'd like to think we're not kind of losing that bit of community as well. And it's there's probably a danger of that it's in some aspects in certain parts of Ireland more than others. Dublin. I was just, <laughs> I was just about to say, because we have spoken about it. Is that something that would be lost by players transferring to play in other clubs? Like, would you have a big problem with that from the outside looking in when you see that happening? Or do, is it very much case dependent? case dependent for a lot of it but I think what we're talking about with, with Dublin and maybe Shane Walsh I think because of the profile of it it's hyped up to be so much bigger whereas you have players transferring all the time and because mm-hmm. maybe there isn't that sort of profile with it it's not nothing's really said about it so I think it was maybe a bit unfair that way but then again it comes back to maybe motivating factors behind it and all the rest but listen if someone's living in another part of the country and they're going to transfer like you totally get that like yeah it's uh, it's because it's my, one of the best players transferring yeah, to one of the best, best teams. Yeah, it's hard. Than, like everyone's different. Like personally, would I do that? I don't know. I I don't think I would. I just I feel like I have a connection to my club, and that's what kind of drives me to play and win for my club. Um, but again, I can't really speak. F- like I'm not. I haven't been in that situation yet where I'm traveling massive distances to, to train with my club. But 
I think you do run the risk of losing that aspect within a club setting if you if you let it go too far. I think fair enough, maybe one, two, three players, but if you start to leak in towards half your team being from other parts of the country, I think it's I think it seeps into everything you're doing. And you can lose that community aspect, you can lose the importance. Some lads might lose interest. Boys who are really big club men or playing for the club all their life and suddenly they're not even getting playing because three or four lads have come from three hours down the road to play. Like, I think there's, as I said, I think you, you risk losing that community aspect. If someone from another part of the country moved to either of your two parishes and joined to play with your club, how would you welcome them in? I would. Are they, are they, are they any good? <laughs> um, no, listen, hundred percent. Like, come on, like you're playing at the end of the day, and um, I'm sure they go to any club. They're going to be welcomed in. Like, um, you know, if they make an impact and they're playing well, then even better. Like, but I think you know anyone that has you know, say they're coming from the other end of the country and they're living in Belfast and training with us or whatever. Like, they're always always more than welcome. Like, so if any all stars want to you know make a move. Um, <laughs> Hit me up and sure we'll have a chat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I wouldn't have m- much of a problem with it now. If someone's far away from where they're actually from, they're living in your in your local area now. They're they're working. They might be in a relationship with someone from around the area. Then I've no issues with that at all. Um, but as I said, once it starts, I think Dublin's kind of the one I'm hitting at the most. Just the way it's going and teams being just completely taken over from lads all around the country. It's it just. I don't know. I just don't know about it. From your experience in Dublin, Pete, do you feel the city has a big difference compared to, say, like rural rural Ireland, rural clubs in Ireland? In terms of in terms of the community aspect, in terms of where players are, is it still very parish related, or do you feel it's a lot more spread out? I can only speak for like Thomas Davis is the club. Obviously, I've been involved in and. I have heard multiple people say it to me from other clubs that Thomas Davis has a real country feel to yeah. it as a club. And obviously being from Tala, all the club members, and it being a smaller club and kind of punching up in terms of like its weight, in terms of participation levels versus your Ballybodens, your Kilmacuds, there is the strongest sense of community and togetherness that I have ever experienced in any club whatsoever. Like... It compares, in my perspective, it is probably above what I experienced at home in Rossgrey. Right. Everything that goes on. Now, there are politics and that in every club, but like it seems to be all pushing and pulling for each other and really having each other's back. Whereas I saw it in Rossgrey, and I haven't seen it in the last few years, but previously... I used to look at my mates that were playing senior with Ross Gray and wonder, and they're traveling the length of the country to play with the club. And I'd look at them and be like, why are you doing that? You're getting nothing but hardship out of everyone in the town because they weren't winning. Now, maybe the difference is they won the Tipperary Championship last year, but I haven't seen it to an extent since. But maybe it's a case that if you're winning, it's worth it. And when you're losing, it's not worth it. But... So I can only speak for Thomas Davis in Dublin, but I have seen from other clubs in Dublin that welcome in people from around the country. They're so welcoming to other people from around the country because like 
the real the realistic thing is that majority of the jobs for a lot of people in Dublin area are going to be in Dublin. So if a fella is from Kerry or from Galway or from Mayo and they're working in Dublin, it's a three, four hour drive multiple times a week to go down and play with their club. So it's a huge commitment. So I know it's for the love of the game and for your community and your parish and all, but if you're losing, that's a hard old drive up and back. And the alternative to that is join a club that are going to welcome you in with open arms. But I have seen in other clubs where there's multiple, say, people from all over the country coming together that some of the people actually from the club start getting pissed off because these lads are better than them and they start playing ahead of them. So it becomes a point of contention. But I think it's very much how you use it and how you harness it because you could very much... Uh, be from some one part of the country and join a different club and like I'm a Thomas Davis club man now like yeah. for life as they've said to me like over the last few weeks when I've told them that I'm moving on and I feel completely part of it and ingrained in that club so not being from the local area is a secondary factor yeah. because of maybe what I've given and what they've seen me give and how welcoming they have been I guess yeah I think I can I can actually relate to that a wee bit more now after being in America last summer and we we like we obviously went on we won uh, Chicago and North American and that bond that we like created within the space of a couple of weeks was actually much greater than I thought it would be and like the set the satisfaction I actually got from from winning that was actually was ma- was massive like um, so I do I suppose it's it's about the community that you end up with like we ended up with a great group of lads not an old cliche but yeah. it was like it was a great <laughs> it was a great group to be involved with and that that makes all the difference um, so I suppose you, it's, it's, it depends on the community you're in it's, it's, it's something I always would have thought you know you have where you're from that's your community you win stuff with them but suppose if you're if you move away you create a bond with other groups um, there's no harm in that either what I will say is two things can be true. And I can feel like a Thomas Davis club man, but I was at that Tipperary County final roar and like yeah, nothing when yeah. Ross Gray were in it. Like, you know, because, okay, I know everybody in Thomas Davis for the last three years or whatever, but like those lads that were playing for Ross Gray are lads that I was in primary school with yeah. and that played the whole way up. So you don't lose that. So you can feel part of two things and two yeah. clubs. And I don't see an issue with that, to be honest. But I do see how some people that wouldn't have experienced it wouldn't understand it, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. It's, I suppose I've always been with my own club, like, and it's something that I wouldn't... I can see even like, going in and coaching the odd team, um, I can I can see how you could come into it and how that could happen, but I just haven't, haven't experienced that myself either. Like, I suppose maybe uni football, like, went to Jordanstown, that was yeah. good crack, like... Mm-hmm. Um, you do make sure the good mates are in, in a short period of time and it's very much, you go play a match, you're probably taking ahead of each other in a under-20s game or something and then you play a match with them and then you're going out that night or something. There's always good crack. Um, yeah. A few Fermanagh well. screwballs. <laughs> <laughs> I think we got a bad bad turn from them Jordanstown teams. I wasn't involved, but from feedback now, a few <laughs> boys might be listening and be laughing. Aye, uh, they don't run a bit. <laughs> but that happens everywhere as well like and we had Maddie in for an interview or a podcast episode 
earlier on and obviously I've been coaching Killian O'Connor and Killian speaks about how he's mates with Maddie like from college and in college there's multiple people from multiple different teams coming together to pull towards a common goal so in a way that could happen at club level as well I guess 100% yeah. I think it's definitely not that we want it to happen uh, not that we want it to happen but I think the bit of variety is class like um, I cause I was I went to Jordanstown at a stage where I was going football is doing my head and I don't want to be this is like the last thing I want to be at and then I went and played that and it was a complete breath of fresh air like and I suppose it you it, said it first time that time I don't know <laughs> I, I must say that too often um, but yeah it was it was it was class getting the play just completely refreshed like and just this just different things we pick up as well um, I suppose if you have someone from the other part of the country coming in and I know like coaching clients here from Kerry playing in Dublin I think it's a completely different game to what we're playing in Kerry but then you know you get that experience from it too and you can bring it you know if in that scenario when you move back to your home club you bring a different dimension to it as well yeah. external coaches coming in to coach a parish team or a county team I was listening to Joe Brawley and Dion Fanning on the way up great podcast episode and they were talking about Mickey Hart going in with Derry. Both E as players, if someone comes in, which they have come in, from a different county to coach you guys, do you see a problem with that? Or do you think that the person coaching the county has to be from the county or person from the club coaches the club? I don't think that is always going to be possible. Like, personally, when I think of my own club, like, we're a very small club. We're now at senior level championship we don't have no disrespect to coaches within my club we don't have coaches that have been at that level and are experienced at that level so kind of going out and getting coaches who have and is kind of fast tracking our progress and giving us a better chance of winning a senior championship so a club level I don't think so a county level I feel maybe more so that I, I, I like having a, a Fermanagh man in um, I'm not sure why that is but that's just I don't know like I feel like that's my experience from it so far anyway um I feel like club you've already got a really good bond and everyone's reeling towards the one you know goal as it is so like having a coach in I don't think impacts that whereas I feel at county level it might it might impact it a wee bit more I'm not sure why I'm in the I mean that was it side of that like I firstly club like uh, love player people from the club coaching love people like I've had people from outside come in and coach there's always with the club there's always been a club man there but we have had outside coaches coming in as well but got on the best with them too um, I think it's what they bring and if they bring quality and something not even something different just good quality and good standards like I'm all for it like I'm happy to love it um, but my experience with the county like our last two managers have been from outside the county and I've really enjoyed what they've brought, like, um, just the freshness. And I suppose you look at maybe what they've done in their own careers, either playing careers or even managing coaching careers. It just brings, you know, you look at the track record and you go, right, they've been there and done it. And it just, you're, you're, you're nearly bought in right away. Um, and I think I like something from the outside too. Like, I think it's brings something fresh and yeah. they look at things in a different way. Whereas, yes, there can be those biases and, all that, like, but I still believe, like, when someone comes in with a clean slate, like, some stuff, like, what you went through this year, or last year, sorry, just passed, that you would have never called at the start of the year. But then, you know, some of the decisions and stuff are made, you'd be going, what's going on here? But then, you know, it works out, and they can obviously see something that maybe our biases kind of, 
we're blinded by maybe. Um, so I've had a real positive experience with that, like at county level. I think I like having a, a bit of a mix now that I think about it. Like you want the best coaches regardless. I think it'd be silly, you know, if, if you have access to some of the best coaches around the country to come in and improve you and you're refusing to look outside you want to just always keep in house but I feel like you do need at least one to two within the coaching mm-hmm. setup to, that is within your county or within your club to because like to understand to understand the the values and like the ambitions of the club and where the clubs come from and why we're here and what we're doing it for I think that's really important too have you ever questioned whether that coach from outside the county is fully bought in Yes, I have. I'm and is that the drop. issue? That that can be an issue, I find. Not that like, oh, it's all their fault, but just naturally they're not going to be as... Some of them aren't. Some of them are really, like, really buy-in and straight away create a connection with you and they're on your side and you feel it. Others, I have had doubts in the past and just once you have... I think once that those doubts... It can be tough for that manager or that coach because once those doubts seep into the group, then it kind of infests around the group and it causes issues then. Um, so yeah, th- there's, a, there's a bigger chance of that happening when it's someone from outside. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think about how I say this, but like, I don't know if it was, I don't know if BAM was the right word for me, but I think it's maybe intentions in the right place or... Yes. Just, uh, maybe the overall standard or if they understand what is going like is going on as you say yeah. um, and maybe what's actually required um, yeah it's a, it's a tricky one I, I ha- there there has been obviously like you do, you, people do come in you do have doubts and you do have questions and you're kind of going right what's this and I think as players too you're very quick to spot wee things and things start building up and you can kind of spot a few things and you're kind of going right something needs to something needs to be said here something needs to be done Um so you can definitely spot it, you can definitely see it, but I don't think, I think when they, they know what's coming, when they, I think when they sign up, they have a big job, like they, they, kind of, they, they know what's kind of required of them. Like. Yeah. What do you look for? What do you spot that stands out as, oh, he's not got the best intentions? And then conversely, what do you spot that shows that, oh, he is fully in here, he wants to win with us? I think it's the wee small things, like organisation is a big one. Set like setting up, knowing like we're going this, this, this into this, like that's massive. Um, just the attention to detail, being clued in, and just knowing what from an organization standpoint, from a tactic standpoint, from a skill standpoint, knowing what needs to be sort of be done, just having that know how about you. I think it's hard to actually pick out we find things, but you can try to pick out what you want, but it's easy to pick out what you don't want whenever you see it. I think from my experience with it someone who is there when you're losing just as much as they're there when you're winning is a big is a big telltale sign for me um like if a coach isn't involved within the count like isn't isn't a so-called county man or a club man and things shit starts to hit the fan like are they standing up and taking brunt of it or are they kind of starting to pass blame remove themselves a bit mm-hmm. from it because they're not actually part of that community if that makes sense um yeah, I've kind of picked up on that slightly just in the past. It's all about accepting responsibility, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And like controlling what you can control, but trying to do your absolute best to win. 
and you spot when people are passing the book, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And maybe to say it out loud, because I don't know if it's what Owen is alluding to, but it's what almost sounds like is having aspirations of getting another job by taking one job. I know that's not what you're saying, but that is a big thing with a lot of coaches when they go in is like, oh, this is a stepping stone or that's the argument that's proposed, yeah. I, I guess, by the media is he's not in it to win with this group. He's seeing it as working with a Division 4 team with the goal of ultimately getting a Division 3 team with then getting a Division 2 team and then hopefully in their mind, coaching their home county Can in say, time. Now I just say, oh, there's a few sort of light bulbs going off, but I would say we've actually had people come in that have been the opposite side of it, who have worked at a, especially in Antrim anyway, they've had people work at a far higher level and higher divisions coming, I suppose, down the us, down the divisions, the us. Um, I think because they see what we're trying to do and what we're, like, there's potential there. So, I can see, yes, definitely one side of it where people, you can see how people would see it as a stepping stone and I feel you can see that has maybe been the case sometimes but on the other side, there's been people who have come in who have worked in Division 1 teams and come in and helped us and gave us loads like and been fully bought in as well and it's been, it's been, it's been class like that. You can tell they're fully invested in just the level of stuff they're going to is just, is unreal. Um, So you could definitely see how it works on both sides. Like, yeah. But if, you're using it as a stepping stone. You're guaranteed to slip because the only way that it can be an effective stepping stone is if you go in and you win. And you're not going to win if you're seeing it as the pathway to something greater. You have to be fully invested in what you're doing. And that's why, look, I understand that argument, but I don't understand like a coach going in and doing that. Because like the only way you get the maximum results and the maximum payoff down the line in terms of success is by focusing solely on the success in front of your face. Like if you go in and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to work with these for a year or two, avoid relegation or whatever, and then another team will come in and I'll transfer and I'll, I'll get a, a gig somewhere else, then nobody's going to come in for you, mate, because you're probably going to fail at what you're um, facing or what you're looking towards so like in relation to other staff not just head coaches players and whatnot we've talked about transferring but I'm sure there's uh, a lot of S&C coaches and therapists and physios and whatnot that go in and out of an inter-county setup and you've seen a lot of them what are the common characteristics of those that are fully bought in and successful and which Common, which characteristics have you seen from those that haven't been successful in getting buy-in from players? Like from my perspective, again, it's just that, that organisation, the tension, the detail, time that they're willing to give you and invest. And, um, you know, they're happy to have conversations with you. They're, 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 they're trying to develop a sort of culture there and they're, you know, educating you along the way and having those relationships with you and taking the time to speak to people. I think that's massive. I think, yeah, player relationships like one-to-one player relationships is, is important with that sort of thing. Um, going over and above what is probably expected goes a long way. Touching base out of the blue sometimes with with players can go a long way as well, I suppose, to creating that connection. I'd say that's probably, like, they're, they're the telltale signs when you know someone's really invested and when they're not. And you can also tell, you know, it's not just about touching base, but it's about 
kind of the, the, the finer details of what they're actually looking to know. Um, you can kind of figure out quickly if someone's just throwing you a generic checkup message either. Um, when it comes to coaches or, or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, that connection is key. I think when it comes to long like a coach having that relationship, you need to know that they care. Yes, and that's how you know if they're invested or not, and whether you want to trust them. Have there been coaches or practitioners that you've worked with that you feel like didn't care? Yeah. And when you decided or when you figured out that they didn't care, how quickly were you bought out or out of uh, the relationship as, as such? Yeah, pretty pretty quickly when you when you pick it up and you realise and... Um, you sort of see through it a wee bit, then you're going, you're just another number. Maybe things are, they're stuck, in, like nothing's going to change. When you when you realise, right, nothing's changing here and it's not serving yourself, it's not serving the team uh, yourself from a physical standpoint or from a playing standpoint to give you the best possible chance of performing, then it's like, right, you know, you're, I think it's hard to kind of restore that again. Like. Yeah. I'd find I'd find the same. You can kind of sense it fairly early. Not that I've had much experience with it, to be honest. A lot of coaches who have had involved, especially at county level, like um, they are they are in it to, to help you. Um, but it, as as Owen said, if it if you do get a sense of that, it's it's nearly it just takes away so much from your actual drive to to, to get better. Um, when you're doubting coaches that are around you. Um, it kind of comes from within then you kind of have to drive it a lot but again haven't had much experience with that do you think that that is why there is such I don't want to use the word drain but some counties have a lot of players that are outsourcing for their SNC rehab RTP all of this type of stuff because they've figured out that maybe the coaching in question doesn't have the time to put into them. And if so, how is that best navigated by the coaching setup? Do you reckon they should be completely open to fresh perspectives? And in and then in relation to your own experience, has there ever been a case where they haven't been open to fresh perspectives? You take us one, you're, you're, you're probably going through that at the minute, are you? Well, t to an extent, yeah. Um, I don't know. It's 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 a difficult one to answer. That, um, I can't. I don't really want to go into too much detail when it comes to talking about coaches and setups because, you know, again, it's we're still like yeah, we're still within setups and there's still coaches that are within setups. So I'll, I'll take over if you want me. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> you keep yourself sweet. Um, <laughs> oh, I've 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 had it from both perspectives but I think it's what you said like you know you look at an SNC coach we we spoke about it a couple of episodes ago where there's there were so many different hats they have they're looking after programming they're looking after actually being there and coaching they're running the ring behind it they're looking at data like feeding back the coach like so much going on so and they're looking after maybe 40 plus lads like so I totally get that you know things can things can maybe slip or things can not even slip just you mightn't get 
in your head you're the most important person in the world and if you're not getting what you feel is necessary attention it can go there can be a disconnect there so i totally get when people go on outsourcing maybe they can like they see something and they get trust in some other process or they, they have another process that they feel will work really well for them and i think in my experience as long as that's working well and it's being communicated and everyone's open to it and the communication is key because i've been in the other side of it where I have been working externally and with within the county setup and the communication was kind of off uh, one, on one page with, with, with one person on another page with someone else and then me in the middle trying to communicate everything and bring it all together and just wasn't adding up so and then I pulled the pin on that pretty quickly but I think communication is key I think I think everyone understanding everyone being on the same page and everyone having the same goal and the same understanding of where you're trying to get to I think it can work really well, uh, but again, as long as it's being, as long as it's being, done in the right way and communicated. But I can also see if people get free reign to go and do whatever they want to do, you know, there can be people that would take advantage of that and not do what's maybe required. Prescribed, to. yeah. I think, like, I suppose I can relate to that quite a lot this year, just with my own issues and trying to figure out what was actually going on and. I was jumping gun and going down loads of different rabbit holes and but I was also communicating it with the physios and the SNCs and the managers what I was doing. I was doing this, trying to find out this. And like once the communication was there and I was explaining why I was doing certain things and going to see dif different people, it was a hundred percent. Like there was no you know, there was no questions really or um it was just about trying to trying to get better and trying to Im improve my own situation as much as I could. Um, so I think communication's the biggest thing. From a coach perspective, I was about to say the exact same thing that the common missing factor is the communication and openness between all of the people invested. So with any athletes that I'm returning to play or rehab and I'll always say to them, tell your physio, drop me an email or a message. Here's my WhatsApp. Tell them to shoot me a message. And, or the head coach and a handful of them will reach out to see what the story is and see what I'm thinking. The ones that reach out and then we jump on a call and talk, those athletes are the ones that most commonly are the ones that return to play. And I won't even say return to play, they return to performance better than they had been when they got injured mm -hmm. because everybody's on the same page in regards to everything. Whereas... If the communication is coming from the athlete, and you're lucky in a sense that you both have a background in SNC, like in physical preparation, but sometimes they don't. <laughs> the athlete has no clue what you're talking about. And the language that is given to the athlete or the information that is given is then bastardized by the athlete and presented to the physio or presented to the head coach, and they're saying, sure, that doesn't make any sense at all. That fella hasn't a clue what he's talking about. So then they're just saying, you're grand, go out and train. Yes. And then the athlete gets injured again. Yeah. Right. So openness is what I think is needed by any practitioner and an openness to know that you don't know everything. Yeah, that's, that's, that's key. key. Yeah, I yeah. think the the openness to be, to be open-minded and that you don't have all the answers. And I suppose the... I don't know if it's humble or maybe like dropping the ego and that it's okay for a player under your watch, so to speak, to be able to work with someone else and still be part of your setup. Um, you know, with coaches, 
like there's been times where maybe a, like a like a club program has been put in place, and I've been working with a coach elsewhere, and everyone's been doing this club program. But I'm like, listen, I've been working with this coach for the last number of months, and I'm I want to keep doing that. And I'm happy to do that. Like as long as they know, right, you're doing the work, you're doing the right thing. That's okay. Like I know there can be. There's been a lot of times where uh, lads I've been chatting to where maybe club managers are going, not we here. I'm finishing up. We have to do this program. We have to do that. And I'm sitting going, why? Like <laughs> yeah, it's like listen, I understand you don't want to cause friction or whatever, but like. You're gonna be better served doing what you've been doing, and it's been working so well for you. Like I would hate to see it going the other direction. Some athletes respond to diff- the same st- stimulus of training differently. So some athletes love getting barbells on them. Their bodies love getting barbells on them, and they get really, really strong. And others don't need to get a barbell on them as often. Like they'll retain the high level of strength. They need some additional maybe plyometrics or reactivity. And oftentimes if a club is given a broad cla- broadcast program and said, everybody do this, some of the athletes are going to respond really, really well to it. Some of them not so well and some of them poorly. <laughs> so if your coach or your physio or whatever isn't as available to individualize slightly the program, then it's probably time that you did outsource to somebody else to get what you need because that's what you need as an athlete. What's going to put you in the best position to perform on the field. And oftentimes a certain program isn't going to suit a certain type of athlete. I think that's just a gap in terms of like the coaches realizing what the program is there for and how it's going to help. Um, a lot of coaches now just think, right, are you doing your gym work? Okay, that's it. That's, that's just, are you doing it or are you not? Yeah. yeah. Whereas there's just so much detail that needs to go into it if you really want to maximize it and throwing blankets over it and just throwing everything the same thing at everyone can actually sometimes be detrimental and, and go the opposite way for some players um, so I suppose it's, it's, it's bridging that gap and improving the knowledge I suppose of management and coaches as to why you're doing things and why players need different approaches and um, if that is an athlete who is individually working with other coaches they kind of need to communicate that as well you get on the pitch as a coach as well in terms of when I put them into their groupings for their conditioning and there might be different distances or whatever or I'll pull an athlete out when they're cooked and their proficiency or their movement pattern kind of has degraded and they're not moving well I'll pull them out the head coach or, or some of the coaches come over, why are you dropping him out he needs more running yeah but he's running like shit like that's no good to him and then sometimes I might have somebody doing some tempo running like extensive tempo and then another fella as you're going to learn about in the coming weeks doing some dribble conditioning or repeat speed and the question will be like well why are they all not doing that that looks way harder so they should be all doing the hard thing and it's because different players need different things what's your thoughts on like bringing in that extremely tough side of conditioning as well. Like, in my opinion, obviously, like, you need to be you need to be making sure lads, as you say, aren't running like shit all the time because it's just going to cause them more harm than good. But then, obviously, there's a side to it where mentally lads need that slog to feel like they're mm-hmm. fit. Would you strike that balance? I strike that balance by identifying early days in the season when our periods of uh, low stress are in relation to matches yeah, and identifying when our days that we're going to push them hard are going to be because obviously I would be fairly 
on the side of maybe a, a quality lens or wanting things to be high quality to rep them at high quality so you can do more of them rather than just quantity and volume. Okay. However, the fact of the matter is that a lot of teams and a lot of players, as you said, feel like mentally they need to go through hard things to feel like they've worked hard so that they feel fit. And from conversations with Daniel Moore, who, if any of you are looking him up, you will find him, he's the ghost on social media, but very, very high level coach. Going through hard things builds togetherness and builds resilience of a group. So it is necessary to go through some very, very hard dogged sessions throughout the year, but you don't want those dogged sessions to impact the quality of the training thereafter. And I still, because of my lens, I still like those high stress, high volume uh, dogged sessions to be somewhat relevant to the game as well and to the task. So I think there is a balance to be struck there, but it's a fine balance, especially at club level where if somebody gets injured or a few lads get injured, like you're not replacing them with anyone. Yeah. I think it's still a problem at club level is that balance between hard and probably medium to low level sessions that you'd still typically see in the build-up of pre-seasons and in-seasons within, from what I see anyway, you still see dogging sessions on a extremely regular basis. Lads coming off just completely bollocks, like, and yeah, it it's it's still there's still a gap there to be filled. Um, at club level, I I feel anyway with probably most counties in Ireland. Maybe I could be wrong in that aspect too. Every county, every county, every county in Ireland, doggedness is still pervasive in terms of the harder it is. And the more of it we do, the better we do. Yeah. Whereas it's literally when you when you actually look at it properly, it's it's the football inside of things that are letting majority of teams down. <laughs> yeah. Like when you get to the semi finals final stage, it's never like Condition. oh that team won because they're fitter than the other team. <laughs> it's well that team won because the other team couldn't fucking knock a ball over the bar to save their life. Yeah. Like they couldn't create any chances. They couldn't break down that blanket defense. So I think that's where the GA has to go. It needs to focus on developing game plans and developing skill sets within training by having a structured overall periodized plan throughout the year to lead towards the game and how you want to play. And you can do that as well. And still lose. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> but I think your, your chances of winning are greater if you do that. Yeah. I think it's that, uh, I think GA, the best way to sum it up is GA just loves that middle, high intensity, high effort, come off feeling fucked, feeling the breath, the heavy lungs, feel it in the back of your throat. They just love that feeling. And even coaching people, you're trying to explain, listen, if you can gradually build up this low intensity volume and get the good amount of three. It might be boring, it might not be very fast, but you know, for conditioning that's gonna do a lot for you. And you're still getting your speed over here. Yes, sprinkling in wee bits and pieces of this, but like it's like I need to be fucked, I need to be fucked, I need to be running to the ground, I need to be doing heavy weights, I need to come out on like and you're just going, that's probably your problem. Like you're just constantly fried and fatigued. That's why you're feeling yeah. like shit and you're all yeah. I'm not fit enough. Like no, you probably are. You're just not giving your chance giving yourself a chance to be fresh to show yeah. that stuff like. And then people end up going further down that rabbit hole. They're already fatigued, they're already burnt out. 
and they're like, I'm not fit. I need to do more tough sessions. And it's it's hard to communicate to them that that isn't what they need. That it's actually probably more, as you say, of the low intensity stuff, building that base um, and probably pulling things back so you can actually reset. Um, yeah. but, but that stuff that we're just talking about where it's it's not high intensity because they're doing it's too, too much, much of it. it. It's, mid- so it's just yeah, in the middle. It's, it's the middle Shit. zone. Yeah. yeah. So they're they're missing both the high intensity and the low, but the easier thing is to take out that middle, do a little bit of low for a while so you can actually push high when you're doing your high days. Yeah. And that's what I was speaking about when you asked the question. Make those high days fucking high. high. Days. Yeah. I was actually listening to podcasts there on the way up the road about like anaerobic, anaerobic and most people think they're in anaerobic, but they're not even close to it. Like with anaerobic, it is max out efforts. It's recruiting your fast twitch muscle fibers. And when you're getting slogged in a game or in training or doing 20 on, 20 off runs, or you're just, a lot of the time you're, you think you're maxing out, but you're really not. You're just, you're just out of breath and tired. Um, so you're probably losing out on both sides of the coin at times. Uh, and that's, I suppose it's it's the culture that's been built up within Gaelic football for the last 20 years. So changing that's going to be a bit of a challenge. That's why we're all in it. Isn't 100%. It? And I think, yeah, I think a lot of us have clicked on that. And I think it's going, everything goes through cycles and waves. Yeah. And from what I've been seeing the last few weeks, I think it is going towards sort of gradually building up volume, lower intensities. And people understand that. There's, uh, Maddie said in the last podcast, we've never seen as much people with Achilles, hamstring, tendon yeah. issues. So, I'm sure a lot of the high intensity, the high load, the high stress, fatigue is having a lot to do with that. So I think it's only a matter of time where it starts to scale back. And I suppose we're going in the right direction, but with anything, sometimes you have to get a few mess up a few things. Not even mess up, just as I said earlier, burn the stake. Like sometimes you have to go too far in one direction. It's a classic case of if some isn't if, if some is good, more must be better. But in reality, it's if some is enough then why do more and just being sensible with what's being done so I think we're I think we are going to go in the right direction yeah. hopefully we're that's gonna, what we're going to change from. the world the three of us <laughs> thanks for coming in again today guys great episode three on the books we'll be back for another one I'm sure 100% cheers <laughs>